Well, it's always, it is always every Sunday, Sunday in, Sunday out, it's always good to see my brothers and sisters in Christ. And today I'd like to read from 1 Timothy chapter 5, and we're returning to a series that I began and, um, and that uh, we interrupted the end of, uh, the end of September between uh, a wedding and a couple of weeks overseas and uh, uh, Presbytery meeting and sit-in meeting and other things, um, and our celebration of Thanksgiving for Andrew and Noreen's return. Uh, so now we come back to this, and I'll be preaching basically three more sermons on this uh, on First Timothy. I could preach more I mean, than uh, than three on the remaining text, but um, we will be getting into Advent, and so I want to wrap this up on the Sunday before Advent, the end of November. But from 1 Timothy chapter 5, I'd like to uh, turn your attention to verse 17 and this section that deals with elders. Uh, That's the way it's typically characterized. This is what Paul writes. He says to Timothy, Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. Do not admit a charge against an elder, except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. And as for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all, so that the rest may stand in fear. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudice or prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands, nor take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. No longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. I think that's a parenthetical statement in the course of this. And then he says, the sins of some people are conspicuous, going before them to judgment, but the sins of others appear only later. And so also, uh, good works are conspicuous, and even those that are not uh, cannot remain hidden. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, I ask you now that you would make the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. Sam Rayburn was elected to his first term in the United States House of Representatives in 1912. After that first election, he was re-elected 24 more times until he died in office in 1961. That's about 50 years. His last 17 years in the House of Representatives, he also served as the Speaker of the House And so, as you can imagine, he wielded great power, great political power. He taught a lot of things. He said a lot of things over the course of those 50 years. But the quip that he taught that is most remembered was this. He said, if you want to get along, go along. If you want to get along here, you're going to go along with the plan. If you want to get along, go along. Or as the birds, a 1960s band sang, which you don't remember, which no one remembers, but the phrase became part of the culture immediately. Don't make waves. Or as the country group, 
Blackberry smokes things, and I'm just trying to show you how broad I am in my musical taste. As a country group, Blackberry smokes things, don't make no trouble. Well, these sentiments, particularly Rayburn's quote, explains the slightly altered uh, title of this sermon, and I draw your attention to it because the title is going to point the way that I'm going to be taking us into our passage. And that title is Going Along or, or Practicing Purity. Are we going along or are we practicing purity? Now here Paul instructs Timothy on how elders are to be honored and compensated, uh, protected from accusation, uh, rebuked for sin, and selected carefully and not hastily. That's what this passage is focusing on. And as we'll see, everything that Paul writes, and we will see this, everything Paul writes, everything he says runs counter to if you want to uh, get along, go along. Everything he writes is grounded in the exhortation that he gives to Timothy toward the end of our passage in verse 22 when he says to Timothy, and this is directed at Timothy, this whole thing, keep yourself pure. Or to put it another way, do not compromise for the advantages that compromises may give you. And I think that this is for every one of us to take deeply to heart. Now, Paul writes very specifically about how he and the congregation are to relate to their elders, as I have already said. But since each of these points is grounded in the Old Testament law and or in Jesus' explicit instruction for us, his instruction to his disciples and how we relate to everyone, everywhere, at all times, I want us to see that also, this broader application of what Paul is saying. And I would say to you, if we don't feel personally challenged at each of these points, we probably are missing the fact, we may be missing the fact, that Christ is calling us, each one of us, to live a very different life by a much higher standard than what is common in the world of our day. And it's because he's calling us, he's saying, he's saying, it simply is not possible for us to go along with a crowd. And so in one sense, this is a harder way to live because we're much more comfortable being part of a crowd in our values, our beliefs, and conduct. We really are pack creatures. We really do want to be with others who agree with us. That's not necessarily wrong. I don't have to say it's a much richer and it's a much more rewarding way to live when what we're living for is not going along for the advantages of our compromises, but when we are practicing purity in our life. It's much richer. It's much more rewarding. We're living under God's blessing. So let's look at what Paul is saying the first thing he says to Paul, the first thing Paul says to Timothy, the first thing he speaks about is honor in verses 17 and 18. He speaks of double honor when he writes, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially, or namely, those who labor in preaching and teaching. Now, Paul had written about honor for godly widows in the passage just before us. And honor speaks of worth. And in the Greek, 
This term in the New Testament is also translated as price in Greek. The word honor is also translated as price, such as when the Apostle Paul reminds the Corinthians of how Jesus had to suffer and die to redeem them. He says to them, you were bought with a price. To honor someone is to think of them, to speak to them, to speak about them, to treat them with the respect and the gratitude that they deserve. That's what honor is in the New Testament. Paul's not here speaking about honoring people because of the office that they hold. I think we should do that, no matter what the office is in the land. He's not speaking of of honoring the office for the office's sake. He is speaking about honoring officers who rule well, who work hard at preaching and teaching. And one way that honor is shown is by giving compensation. In fact, that's where our word for compensation comes from, which is honoraria. We give honoraria when we have a guest preacher. We give them an honorarium to those who earn it. And so also in the two verses that follow, Paul warns against muzzling the ox, which is withholding food, while that ox is treading out grain. That's very hard work. And then he reminds Timothy also, quoting Jesus, that the farm laborer deserves his wages. Laborer there refers to a farm laborer. It's a, it's a very hard thing to be a daily farm laborer. And so the first quote is from the Old Testament. The second quote is from Jesus. It's quoted in Luke 7. And I'll just notice, note with you parenthetically here, it's very interesting, that when Paul says that the uh, worker is worthy of his rages, what does he call that? He calls that scripture, which is very significant. So already in 60 AD, this quote from Jesus has been inscripturated. It is regarded as scripture. Very significant. So by double honor, I think what Paul is saying, I'll put it in the negative, I think Paul is not saying fawn all over someone, you know, ply them with flattery. I don't think he's saying pay them double what they're worth. I think when he talks about double honor in this context, he's speaking on the one hand of respect, and I think on the other hand of of compensation that is deserved. Very good. But what I want to say to you today, taking this further, is this kind of treatment is to govern all of our relationships. Showing gratitude, expressing our respect, speaking honorably to people or speaking honorably about others, freely, happily rewarding hard work with due compensation, Praying God's blessing on people is not how the world works. I mean, its standards are far lower. The tendency of this world is to draw attention to oneself, not to give attention or to give honor to someone else. But what Paul is really writing about here, when he speaks of honor, when he speaks of respect, he is really talking about loving our neighbor as ourselves. And this really begins, as you know, in the Old Testament, and not with uh, Levites. It, it begins with mom and dad. Honor your father and your mother. This is respect that they deserve. It is, it is due. It is appropriate. Now, I say this is part of honoring our father, or part of, I'm sorry, this is part of loving our neighbor as ourselves. But how is that so? Respecting, showing gratitude honoring. 
Well, I'd like you to think about it this way. Think with me about it this way today. Who among us is not prone to discouragement? I don't see any hands. Who among us doesn't question whether his or her good work is worth the effort when no one seems to appreciate it? Have you never stopped helping and pitching in in the face of ingratitude? Who among you doesn't savor thoughtful appreciation or words of respect from someone who takes notice of what you do? You see, showing honor to whom it is due, showing honor and respect really is about loving our neighbors as ourselves. It's about doing unto others as we would have them do to us. It is part of following Christ. Now Paul speaks secondly about something else. He talks about protection. Paul talks about guarding elders against rumors and unsubstantiated accusations. In this text, he's writing about admitting a formal charge against a leader. This would be formal church discipline. Verse 19 says, Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. This comes right out of Deuteronomy. Jesus quotes it um, from it, this idea repeatedly. It's in the letters of the New Testament as well, two or three witnesses. This is about guarding and protecting people's reputations. The most important possession a person has is his or her reputation. And surely this principle of protection uh, extends beyond you know, formal or judicial, ecclesial discipline. Surely it extends to gossip and are not listening to it and are not passing it on. Surely the same is true when it relates to uh, as far as passing on rumors or passing on judgments on people's motives or passing on criticisms for which you have no proof. Passing those things on, that is called hearsay. And hearsay has a way of becoming embellished. It has a way of becoming juicier and juicier. Because there isn't evidence to substantiate it. So it just gets embellished, it gets reinforced, it gets juicier and juicier until it's irresistible. And beginning with you, nip it in the bud. You hear this kind of thing at work, you may hear this thing, kind of thing at home, you can hear this kind of thing, this kind of language, this kind of treatment or mistreatment of others at school, don't listen to it. Don't pay attention to it. And if you have courage, say it. I'm not interested in this. This is none of my business. I don't know if it's true. Have you asked that person? We have an obligation to guard one another. And when we do, when we relate, you know what it is to withdraw from a conversation in which that kind of talk is going on. When we do, we're running cross-grained with the world where it's so common in practice to raise ourselves up by putting others down. When our world is so prone to envy, so willing to taste the forbidden fruit of pleasure in the ruin of others. So you see, what Paul is really saying here, I think, speaks beyond uh, his specific focus of church officers. I think it speaks to generally to how we treat people. It's part of practicing purity in our lives. 
Thirdly, he speaks to, about confrontation over sin. He speaks about rebuke when there's failure to repent. You know, no one's above the law of God. No one's above being called to account. In verse 20, then, Paul is writing about elders when he says, as for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all so that the rest, the rest of who? Well, we're getting the rest of the elders, but of course, certainly the whole congregation may stand in fear. In other words, we, <laughs> the fear is in fear of what others might, uh, what, what might happen to us publicly. The fear is a fear of God. In the case of elders here again, Paul's speaking about for formal judicial process, but the principle holds true for us all in all of our relationships. The more powerful, the more popular, the more prestigious a person is, the more reluctant we are to address them about their sin. The same could be said, I think, of those whose love means the most of us. Maybe we fear we're going to lose it. We'd rather pass on taking the mantle of profit and saying what must be said. We'd rather pass on that. Rather pass on correcting what needs correction. Because to do that feels risky. You feel like you're sticking your neck out. But the greater risk is to fail in our responsibility because it encourages the spread of corruption. And it can create the impression that we are condoning what really is not acceptable. I do think there's a bit of a caveat on this, for sure. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, when we're uh, 5, maybe, or 6, when we're talking about, I think it's 6, where we're talking about uh, examining and passing judgment, Paul makes it clear, this doesn't say our job is to examine and pass judgment on the whole world. (laughs) The world's in very bad shape. But when we do have these personal relationships, family relationships, and within the church, certainly among God's people, this does apply. And I know it's hard to do, but think with me for a moment about what the book of Proverbs teaches. The book of Proverbs teaches, faithful is the wounds of a friend. A friend. What's implied here, of course, is privately going to someone, not just publicly trying to humiliate them. Proverbs teaches, like iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. Proverbs 12.1 says, whoever loves discipline loves knowledge. Just as there is a guilt associated with slander and gossip and rumor-mongering and backbiting, there's a guilt associated with silence when something needs to be said. This is part of practicing purity. And then the fourthly, the Apostle Paul speaks about discernment. He talks about not just discernment, hear me, but taking the time necessary to exercise discernment in the first place when making significant choices or decisions. And in this case, of course, it's selecting leaders. So referring to the ordination of elders, presumably in verse 22, Paul says, do not be hasty in laying on of hands, nor take part in the sins of others, which I take to be complementary, or um, I'll say just say complementary to the first part. Uh, when we endorse, we embrace someone uh, and put them, invest them in a position of authority and they um, act up, act out, and break down and we did not uh, do our diligence to um, consider, to weigh, to discern, then we bear part of that responsibility. I think that's what Paul means when he says don't enter 
into the sins of others. Well, why does he say this? Why does he say, don't be hasty? And the reason is, to put it very simply, you already know this, but it's good to be reminded. The reason is because the wicked try to cover up their sins. And the reason is because the godly are reluctant to tout their virtues. And so if we are hasty, we may be putting people in office who appear well-suited, but are deeply flawed, or pass over very qualified people because they're more reserved or quiet or really don't stand out or boast about what they do. It need time, and we need discernment. It protects us from getting drawn into bad relationships. It protects us from getting drawn into corners where all of our choices then are, are compromised. Discernment and time. In Philadelphia, in Philadelphia in, with the Philippians, the Apostle Paul wrote, and if he'd been in Philadelphia, he may have said this as well, but he wasn't in Philadelphia. He said, and this is my prayer, that your love abound more and more with the knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and be pure. You hear that? Be pure and blameless in the day of Christ. This exercise of discernment is we're praying for, for ourselves, for one another. It is a spiritual gift. And the point is so that we can practice purity, that we live purity. And this is critical in every single relationship of our lives, especially with choosing your spouse or choosing who's going to be your boyfriend or your girlfriend or just who you're going to be friends with. You know, guarding marriage, spouses, boyfriends, girlfriends. Sexual attraction is natural. I think it's fine. I think it's you know, great. The problem with sexual attraction is that if that is what's driving us and shaping us, uh, our decisions, the problem with sexual attraction is that it tends to take us on a detour around our brains, and we have to use our brains. We need to be discerning. People are icebergs. Nine-tenths are beneath the surface. One-tenth, what we know as the tip of the iceberg, is above the surface, is what we see at first glance. So that haste then, hastiness, always favors superficiality. And it not only favors superficiality in relation to the choices we're making, those whom we choose, it favors superficiality in us. In us. We, our go-to point is our prejudices, our partialities, our natural tendencies to favor. Haste, haste favors superficiality. And it doesn't just apply to those choices or who we choose. It applies to us. We must be careful. Integrity, faith, strength to persevere, these are not immediately evident in people. It's just not. It's not because people are hiding them. I mean, it's just not immediately evident. People don't go, hey, I'm a very patient, persevering person. You should get to know me. We don't do that. These things don't lie on the surface. I mean, what does Proverbs 31 say? One of my favorite chapters of the Bible. It says, charm is deceitful. Now, beauty is fleeting. It just really is. Proverbs 13, 20 says, whoever walks with the wise becomes wise, but the friend of fools will suffer. We need to be discerning. 
So Paul is teaching us, back to verse 21, and all these things, showing respect, guarding people's reputations, speaking up when we need to speak up, speak a word of, of uh, correction, um, not being hasty, exercising discernment. In all these things, he's talking about how to keep yourself pure, pure. We're, the Lord calls us to live righteously before him and before the world, and that will set us apart. And I think this is surely a, a prominent part, a significant a- aspect of what Jesus was teaching when he called us as his disciples, the salt of the earth. We are different. We do not move with the crowd, the lemmings, whether we gossip like all of them, whether we duck our heads and hide our heads in the sand like the rest do. We don't do that. We don't go pick fights. We're not world critics, but we will give honor to whom honors do, whether it seems correct or not. We will, we will protect people's reputations so that at any time you would go up to someone and share Christ with them, you would not have to be thinking in their mind, I hope they don't know what I've said about them off, off stage, in private. That's the kind of life we're called to live. And you should be able to speak to anyone on the face of the earth about Christ without fearing that they may know what you said about them somewhere else. That's a biblical standard. That is Christian love. That's Christian integrity and righteousness. It's how we keep ourselves pure and unstained from the world. You know, the first definition of pure in my dictionary, the ones I look up, they always come to this immediately, is free from contamination. So it's kind of a negative definition. It's not what purity is, it's what purity is not. It's free from, it's separated from contamination. Or we might say it's free or separated from compromising. And I say the honoring and protecting and rebuking as necessary and discerning, these are ways you guard yourself. This, this is the way to be that person Christ calls to be with others and a witness to others. So when you have that opportunity, you can witness from integrity. And those people who know you, you walk your, way, your life out in this way, they understand that about you. Before you ever speak to them about Christ, your life in its integrity and its commitment to purity has already spoken to them and has helped pave the way. So we speak and so we testify as those who live the truth. Who live the truth. Amen. P.S. If that seems hard, if that seems difficult, if that seems stressful to you, well, Paul gives Timothy an antidote for that as well. You may not like it, but he suggests, no longer drink water only, but have a little wine once in a while for your stomach and all those frequent ailments. 
that my instruction causes you. I think that's the way we're to take it. Paul's talking to Timothy. Little sidebar comment. Timothy, I know this gives you indigestion. Take a little wine for that, okay? But please, keep this commandment. Keep it. God bless you. Let's pray. Father, we love you and we love your truth and we want to be your people and we want to practice purity. It's not easy, um, but it's good. It's good. And what else would we want to do when we look at the alternative of <laughs> having our lives depend upon the approval of others, of thinking that our compromises that have gained their approval is what our lives depend on. It's not. It never has been. Never will be. So help us be a people of integrity in regard to our own lives, certainly in regard to our church, which means first and foremost our officers, how we select them, that we would love them and appreciate them, that we would uh, protect them, that we would speak to them words that need to be spoken and rebuke when that has to happen, that we would be uh, savvy, that we'd be discerning in our choices. Uh, Lord, this isn't about being suspicious of others. This is, this, is about, this is about practicing purity in our own lives before Christ. So we are the people he's called us to be. So we are following him as he calls us to follow him. And we'll give you thanks for all that you do. In Jesus' name, amen.